Good morning. Welcome back to the Broadcast Retirement Network. This is BRN Weekly for Saturday, December 9th, 2023. It's been another great week with great topics and great guests. We kicked off the week with a look at the acceleration of the decline in local news outlets. Let's take a look. It, it is deeply concerning. And, and just to run some of the numbers past you that we found in our state of local news report, uh, which we issued earlier this month, uh, there are now 204 entire counties in the U.S. with no source of local news, no newspaper, no digital site, no public radio, no ethnic media. That's about 3 million Americans. Uh, then on top of that, you've got more than 1,500 counties where there's only one news source. Uh, that's about 52 million Americans. Uh, so you combine those two numbers and you've got basically 55 million Americans with either no local news source or very limited access to local news. And this is something that I think has big implications for our democracy, for our society, for how we view one another. Um, and, and I'd be happy to go into kind of some of the what the research shows. And so let's think about this. So you've got these million, tens of millions of, of Americans with either no local news or very limited local news. So what do they do when they don't have a local news source? Well, I think they do a couple of things. One is they turn to Facebook groups or Nextdoor or a social media platform. And look, I think it's great that people are being civically active on Facebook and they want to know what's happening in their community, but there's a problem with that. And, and the problem is that there's no professionally trained journalist who's moderating that conversation or who's fact-checking or checking documents or interviewing sources or checking clips who's doing a lot of the basic things that journalists do to make sure that accurate, reliable, credible news is getting out to local communities. So the result of that is there's a lot of misinformation and disinformation that gets spread uh, through social media uh, on these sites. And I think that this is contributing to the problem we have across the country with misinformation and disinformation that's kind of spreading like a cancer um, across the country. So, you know, th this is a big, big problem, um, I, I think, in many ways. And it's also contributing to kind of the hyper-partisanship yeah. that we're seeing in, in the country. So I, I think the other thing people do is they turn to national news sources. Um, and news has been nationalized in a lot of ways. And that means turning to cable news uh, sites on the right or the left, uh, and and you end up in this ideological filter bubble uh, where your own personal belief sets are reinforced, as opposed to like you were just saying in your case, you get multiple sources of information, uh, which is great. But unfortunately, a lot of folks aren't doing that. So they just end up in this cocoon uh, of, of news and information. And, and, you know, there's now research that shows that when there's no local news, and this is research by other universities, not Northwestern, that uh, uh, government spending goes up, that government corruption rises, um, that civic participation declines because people don't know about candidates in local elections or the details of local elections. And, you know, we're in a crisis with local news, and, and it's not a red crisis or a blue crisis. It's a crisis. You know, the news deserts are all over the country in Democratic areas, Republican areas. It doesn't matter. Um, this is not a partisan issue. This is a serious problem. 
Uh, the business model for local news has collapsed. Uh, it's imploded. And it's imploded for a couple of reasons. W one is that audience preferences have shifted from print to digital news sources, smartphones, uh, laptops, desktops, whatever. Um, and so fewer people are buying print newspapers these days. That's the first thing. And the, the second thing is that uh, digital advertising revenue has shifted to social media platforms and to search. And you know, by some estimates, about two thirds or even three quarters of all the new digital ad revenue goes to three companies, uh, Meta, Google, and Amazon. So there's just not much left for local news organizations to sponge up to support uh, local journalism. And, you know, it, it's a big structural problem. You know, about 10 years ago, 80% of all the revenue for local news organizations came from advertising. Uh, now, uh, uh, about half, more than half of the revenue comes from readers through subscriptions, uh, digital subscriptions, memberships, uh, and that sort. But advertising for local news uh, has just completely uh, uh, collapsed, and you know, not completely, but largely. And so that that's that's the big part of the problem. We also took a look at financial considerations when caring for aging loved ones. Let's take a look. This is one of the most emotional life milestones that folks, you know, you our age are going to be uh, tackling. So many of the life milestones that you think about. Um, that we've gone through already, getting married, buying the first house, paying off our college debt. Those were all kind of really exciting and happy milestones. This milestone coming up is something that's a little bit more challenging and a little bit more difficult because there are just so many really deep emotions involved when we're talking about our aging loved ones, our parents. And I'm speaking about this from experience both personally and having done this with for clients. And so really having a plan in place right at the get-go is gonna be very important. And we'll talk a little bit about the components of that plan and some of the challenges that um, that folks may face as they're putting this in place. You know, this is really a little bit of a role reversal, potentially, right? Our parents have, uh, we've looked to them as our role models, as leaders of their families. And um, and now there's a little bit of a role reversal. So kind of starting, the starting point I like to do is really be thinking about, what are our parents thinking about? Like, what, what does this mean for them? You know, when our, when, our, when we're physically aging, it's really, some people see it as a betrayal that their bodies are betraying them and not performing in the ways that they used to perform. And of course, if they're facing cognitive decline, they may not even realize it, but you, as you know your parent, this is something that's just really, really difficult. So that's where I like to start first, is kind of putting ourselves in our parents' shoes in this season of life and thinking about what must they be going through? So the next components of the care plan are really to do a health and a wealth assessment. And those in equal measure are really important. And it's really important based on what we talked about earlier about how emotional this um, part of life is, is to try to do that health and wealth assessment as um, really as clinically as possible. Right. So what I like to do first is kind of start out with a needs assessment. And so you're kind of thinking about from a physical perspective, an emotional perspective, what might your aging loved one need? Kind of that's the that's the place to start. And then you look at what do they already have in place? Perhaps they're living in a community that is conducive to aging in their homes, aging in place. Um, but oftentimes they aren't. So that's kind of the first thing to do is like the needs assessment and then the, the kind of gap analysis. What do they need and what's not already built into their 
lives that may need to be provided and paid for, right? If you yourself cannot do it, uh, or um, you know, you're gonna have to find someone or pay someone to kind of take care of those needs. And so really after the kind of the, the health assessment, the, the gap analysis, then I look to look at a financial analysis to figure out how is this all gonna be paid for? And we'll talk about the components of what's included in that. So housing is a really important factor in this care plan. Um, there are a lot of emotions related to housing and oftentimes folks do not wanna leave their the family home where they've raised their children and the kids have grown up and they've lived for many years. So for folks that have not downsized, what they need to look at is from a physical standpoint, is the house, as you had kind of talked about earlier, does it need an elevator? Does it need wider doorways? Is there a first floor um, suite where there's a bedroom and bathroom so that there can be all on one floor living? Um, the second piece to look at related to housing is, you know, if we have an older loved one who has not yet downsized, there may be significant equity inside that home, significant value. So the, the house may be worth far more than what the um, what your parents paid for it or what's owed on the mortgage. And so we may need to tap that value in order to pay for some of the care that you may see coming down the, down the pike that they're going to need. This can be really hard, and that's why working with somebody, whether it's a financial advisor who can advise you on these matters, or a financial coach, or or just even um, you know you your audience members having heard a little bit of that, kind of broaching these kind of conversations um, with their older loved ones, it's often easier to kind of start talking about thing these sorts of things before care is actually needed or a significant amount of care is actually really needed. Um, but really talking about personal finances with our with our loved ones, with our aging loved ones can be really difficult. You know, the other part of the financial plan that we're going to want um, folks to kind of have in place is really a list of assets that they have, retirement assets, savings accounts, um, anything that they're going to be able to draw upon to kind of create an income for themselves. We're going to want to know what sort of debt level is outstanding. Do they have credit card bills or a car loan or a mortgage still? Um, and then we're going to want to see and help our um, parents create a, what I call a legacy document. And this document really is going to list out all the different types of insurance they have in place, the beneficiaries that are listed, um, anyone in our parents' lives who helps them with their finances, such as a financial advisor, an insurance agent, a tax preparer. We're gonna want all of these things listed on this legacy document, um, just to make it easier for us um, as we're going through the process with our parents um, to know where everything is. And it's really important to kind of have a dashboard for our aging loved ones to figure out, okay, what do my personal finances look like? What's my monthly cash flow? And what could I afford if I needed to go to the most expensive level of care? Yeah, there's a lot of different things, you know, you can be thinking about. And as you said, taxes generally do go down because for our aging loved ones, our parents, their incomes are going down. Now, I'm at an age where I have parents who actually have pension income. And um, and so for, for folks of our age, it may be that our that their that their incomes probably won't be going down, that they'll be kind of staying steady, although maybe not growing with inflation. So I highly encourage my clients to kind of um, consult with a tax professional. And um, it's really important to be kind of thinking about the different levels of care that are provided um, state to federal um, that they, you know, depending on medical uh, care expenditures, there are some tax breaks for that, but it really is state by state. And we highly encourage clients to work with a, a tax professional on that. Well, we're halfway through a look at some of our best segments for the week. We come back, we take a look at the other half. You're going to want to stay tuned right here on BRN Weekly. 
Imagine a new television network that will make you richer, healthier, and in control of your financial future. This network is for the policewoman in Nashville, Tennessee, the baker in Dubuque, Iowa, the teacher in Lexington, Kentucky. We want to make the idea of savings and retirement culturally relevant. But what do you see as a defining issue of the midterms? Especially for the smaller businesses, I mean, they are the lifeblood of the American economy. Featuring exclusive interviews, current affairs, and docu-series. 33 yeah. years old, you retired early. The philosophy is money only matters if it helps you live a life that you love. But you gotta start thinking about retirement as soon as you get in. The Broadcast Retirement Network will drive very high engagement with premium partnerships. So this isn't retirement and savings for your parents or grandparents. This is for all Americans. And we're gonna change the way you think about money. Welcome to the next frontier of retirement and savings. This is BRN, the Broadcast Retirement Network. Welcome back. Next up, we discuss how to help veterans achieve career success. Let's take a look. I think it's different for every single veteran exiting the military, but there are about 42% of veterans who report that they're finding uh, or having concerns about finding suitable employment when they leave the military. And the optimism overall, I think we're seeing a shift uh, and, and a negative shift. You know, the net positive feelings in a, a similar survey we took in 2021 uh, were 83%, and that's down to 75% in a similar survey we took this year uh, as, they, uh, as they report their feelings about finding uh, suitable employment outside of the military. So it's, there are a lot of challenges facing veterans as they get out. I think uh, veterans make great employees. And I, I don't think that that's necessarily in dispute with veterans or even in the, uh, you know, in the workforce. Uh, you know, there, there's a unique set of experiences that really shape how veterans respond to challenges. And that's really, really valuable in the civilian workforce. You've got teamwork and problem solving and leadership and, you know, all these skills that you pick up that your average, you know, 25-year-old isn't going to have. Uh, but the challenges are, are very real, and uh, I think it's not so much about how skilled a veteran is. It's, uh, it's more about connecting the dots between employers and veterans. There are, are really big barriers that are associated with navigating the system. Uh, something like 40% or so of veterans report that navigating the system is really, really a, a, a challenge. I know in my experience, and you know, it's, it's been a lifetime ago since I got out of the military, but... Uh, you know, when I left the Marine Corps, um, I, I felt really positive about exiting. I, I thought I have these amazing skills. I was a helicopter crew chief and, and I, I could do a lot of great things. So I figured, you know, I'd get out, I'd, you know, I'd go to college, see what they know. I'd make be a millionaire in a week or two and that'd be it. But it doesn't work out that way uh, because navigating the system is challenging. It's really, really prescriptive in the military. You know when your next promotion is coming and when it's due. You know when it's appropriate to change careers. 
uh, you you know the language, you know, there's a shorthand in the military. All of that is kind of stripped away when you leave the military and the veteran has to learn really a whole new language when they come out and a whole new way of, of seeking and moving through the employment system. And uh, employers, you know, if, if they really want to help bridge that gap, I think learning some of that and trying to lean on some of the veterans within their uh, current uh, employment to bridge that, uh, to bridge the, the language barrier between a veteran and an employer, you know, to understand, you know, what is an MOS and what are uh, some of these specific, uh, you know, skills and, and types of language that a veteran might use to describe how they can help your firm. And finally, we discussed, is the Social Security COLA in 2024 enough? Let's take a look. Uh, well, just a quick definition, uh, just to share with everybody. The Bureau of Labor and Statistics defines inflation as the upward movement of goods and services prices in the economy. So the cost of everything, right? So that's all measured and mapped uh, on many different indexes. Uh, and those numbers are reported every single month. So we get a lot of that data. It's all out there uh, for us to kind of derive where we think it's going. And that's probably the biggest thing is where do we think that those numbers are going? But the October CPI, which is Consumer Price Index, uh, which measures inflation, had two readings. One is what we call the headline reading, which was 3.24%, uh, which is down from the cycle highs of about 9%, which was the middle of last year. And that is down from the start of the beginning of, of this year um, at about 6.4%. So the other reading that we get is what we call the core inflation rate, uh, which is about 4%. And the only real difference there is that they measure uh, different readings uh, and they include different things in those readings um, inside of those numbers. So, so to, to start consensus estimates, as they call it, uh, is a very well published number of different uh, Fed heads, as, as we were sort of alluding to. Um, and the first half of 2024, based on those consensus estimates, uh, is coming in around the two, around the high twos uh, to about 3%. Um, one of the research companies that we heavily use uh, call, uh, called Hedgeye Risk Management, uh, they come in a little bit higher and we've found them to be a little, uh, a little more on the, on, the, on the nose with these numbers. Um, that the consensus is going to be about three and three and a quarter, three point two five percent. So, um, I mean, honestly, forecasting, like you said, forecasting the CPI for any year, let alone next year, uh, remains a difficult proposition because there's so many different variables: Fed policy, energy prices, geopolitical risks, like we're seeing now, just all kinds of factors. Uh, if I could, let me take one step back and maybe explain a little bit about cola. Uh, for those folks that might not fully understand it, but the, the COLA or the cost of living adjustment is an in increase uh, to the Social Security payments, which counter counteract the effects of rising prices uh, or inflation, as we've been talking about. So for 2024, for approximately 71 million Social Security recipients, uh, that increase is going to go up, like you said, to 3.2%. So just as a historical note, in 2023, uh, 
the largest Social Security increase in four decades was given for that year, and that was 8.7% to, 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 again, deal with the high rate of inflation from the prior year. So just as an example to answer your question about how you, whether we're going to be able to overcome that or whether retirees are going to be able to overcome that, um, Medicare Part B premiums in 2024 will rise to $174.70 per month, uh, which is about a 5.9% year-over-year increase. So that's one example. But outside of that example, if, if, for instance, inflation projections are correct with the rest of, uh, the, rest of the prices, including uh, you know, some of the other factors that we need to take into consideration, the, the cost of energy, cost of food, all those kinds of things. And you go into the realm of the two high twos to 3%, uh, then the 3.2% increase will, will indeed keep up with what we call the purchasing power to counteract inflation. The other side of that coin is that retirees that are more on fixed income, uh, they rely on their social security benefits to to pay for those largest expenses, again, food, energy, and shelter. Uh, if the CPI numbers uh, run hotter than expected, then, then that COLA increase, it may not be enough to keep people in their, their current living, uh, standard of living. So, so depending on the stage of retirement that somebody is in, either uh, re retirement when they are pre-retired or early, middle, or late retirement uh, really answers that question better. But one thing to consider is that those retirees that do have retirement assets set aside can typically beat inflation through having the investment returns greater than the inflation results, which is definitely going to help them offset those price increases. So other strategies that are that are more relevant today are, are things like taking advantage of the timing of when Social Security payments happen maximizing the amount of payments that the planning out for the future needs is what they address today. So I would say really to answer the question best, there's really four or five different specific things that, that retirees should do every single year, which includes annually reviewing those, uh, those income streams, annual retirement plan distribution planning, uh, reviewing the health care and other expenses that they have. And if they do have additional savings or uh, additional income, I should say, adding that into savings and then just a general understanding and review of the budget on an annual basis is, is critical. Yeah. I remember my mother uh, actually coming to me one time and she had actually gone through her her gap policy, her, her additional health care policy and and she said, you would be very proud of me. What I did was I just went through and I compared prices and I, and I got something, same coverage at a better price. So that's, that's what you hope for. Great segments. I want to thank all of our great contributors this week. And that wraps up this episode of BRN Weekly. Have a topic of interest, someone you think we should talk to, drop us a line. And don't forget, for all the latest curated news and lifestyle, wellness, finance, tech, so much more and all in one place, check out today's edition of our daily newsletter, The Morning Pulse. Want to search our archives, check out our latest content, then visit our website. We're back again tomorrow with another edition of BRN Sunday. I'll be joined by the Legal Eagles, David Levine and Kevin Walsh, and then Oliver 
Brennick of the Schwab Network will be here to break down markets. You're not going to want to miss it. Until then, I'm Jeff Snyder. Stay safe, keep on saving, and don't forget, roll with the changes. Now is your opportunity to co-create content around any topic on the first lifestyle and wellness network. Reach a global audience through our platform and co-own exclusive branded content. All of our programs are available on demand and also as audio-only podcasts so you can take us on the go. Broadcast Retirement Network, available anytime, anywhere, and on any device.